Before we dive into today's episode, I want to take this opportunity on behalf of Animal Activism Mentorship and my podcast co-host Trey to wish you all a very happy new year. Let's make 2024 a year filled with remarkable victories for the animals. Welcome to a new episode of the Animal Liberation Hour, where we seek insight from animal rights and liberation activists around the world so that we can think, reflect, learn, and be inspired together. My name is Shreya, and this is the Animal Liberation Hour. This podcast is brought to you by Animal Activism Mentorship. AAM's mission is to grow and strengthen the animal rights movement by providing a space for activists to have access to a community and various educational resources. From one-on-one mentorship, to free workshops and trainings, to this podcast, AAM aims to empower humans to take action for the animals so that we can create a kind, just, and equitable world for all creatures. For more information, visit AnimalActivismMentorship.com or our link tree, which you can find in the show notes. There, you can sign up for a free mentor, keep up with all things AAM, and donate so that we can continue this important work for the animals. In today's episode, I'm really excited to be joined by Anna Balser. Anna has spent the past two years as the education manager at Woodstock Farm Sanctuary in High Falls, New York, which is home to nearly 400 rescued farmed animals. The sanctuary welcomes thousands of visitors each year for educational tours and programs and reaches millions more through their online advocacy campaigns and education efforts. Anna holds a master's degree in anthrozoology from Canisius College, where she primarily focused her studies on sanctuary regulation, public policy, and animal ethics. She loves helping people question their assumptions about veganism and think more deeply about their relationships with other species. So here is the thoughtful, compassionate Anna Balser on the Animal Liberation Hour. Anna, welcome to the Animal Liberation Hour. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, pleasure is ours. Uh, I know we uh, connected through a mutual friend, Maddie, who's also your coworker at Woodstock Sanctuary. So we, of course, love the work that sanctuaries do in the space. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you more about your work and Woodstock's work and all of that. But before we get into that, I think it would be great to just go over your story and your personal journey and what brought you into the animal rights and activism space. Yeah, definitely. Um, It was a long and winding road, I'll say. Um, I've been sort of an animal person since I was a kid, um, but never met a vegan person that I knew of until I was in my 20s, um, which is pretty surprising as I'm kind of thinking about that. Um, when I was younger, you know, I definitely was someone to speak up about animals being mistreated and um, injustice as I saw it. That was definitely my personality, but I didn't really have a framework um, beyond 
vegetarianism um, for really a long time. Um, and so I was vegetarian for quite a long time. Um, before I went vegan, I kind of made my way into the space. Um, and so some kind of formative experiences, I guess, like sort of paved the way to where I am now. Um, after I graduated from college, I interned at a sanctuary that really, looking back on it, was not a true sanctuary at all. Um, it was not an animal rights or liberation framework in any sense. It was just sort of a strange experience that I had at the time. Um, was it like a petting of, zoo or something? Or um, No, it wasn't a petting zoo. It was just... Uh, it was a place where elephants were living um and uh yeah it was strange like kind of in the middle of nowhere um and they actually had sort of like a hostile um approach to animal rights in general um which was really interesting and at the time i just kind of absorbed that and then and kind of just moved on with my life it sort of planted a very specific seed that wouldn't come to fruition until much later I think mm -hmm. um and so I kind of moved on from that I was like that was interesting that was weird <laughs> time to start my my real life quote unquote um I started working in the human social services world at a nonprofit, and I kind of let my original passion of working with um or on behalf of animals just sort of die out um didn't last too long. So a couple years later, um, I decided to take some concrete steps to somehow work in animal advocacy or even conservation. I didn't know what it would specifically look like. I just knew that that was kind of the right direction for me to go in. And so I pursued another um, sort of live-in volunteer experience at another sanctuary that also turned out to be um really a questionable experience not a true sanctuary what is with these weird sanctuaries oh we can talk i could talk about this yes part. actually All that day. would be great All especially day. for people to know how to distinguish what sanctuary is actually there for their residents versus just into some shady business yeah yeah um so i mean i now know that there really is no regulation around the title of sanctuary. Anybody can call themselves an animal sanctuary and there's no um, there's no official mechanism for regulating them or you know making sure that they're doing what they say that they are doing. So there are definitely a lot of facilities that are happy to take people's money as donations and they have animals there on their property, but um, the way that the animals, uh, are treated and perceived and just kind of the ethical framework isn't isn't there um and there's no there's not great oversight there um and so that happened i won't get into the details but the month that i spent living there really changed me in a lot of ways and it really sort of pushed me further down this road in thinking about human animal relationships um it made me think a lot about speciesism, um, particularly in the animal advocacy and advocacy adjacent world. Um, so again, I was like, well, that was terrible, but I'm not giving up. I'm, I'm just moving on to the next thing. So I started working at um, a dog shelter 
And um, I learned a lot there about human and non-human interactions. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about just how I wanted to be in the world, what I wanted my relationships with other animals to look like and be founded on. Um, and importantly, while I was there, I also met the first vegan person that I had ever met, at least to my knowledge, um, who had ever talked to me about The fact that you were at two sanctuary, well, sanctuaries in quotes before that, and like you met a fellow vegan at uh, a dog shelter is quite fascinating to me. Yeah. And these were not sanctuaries for farmed animals. So that is, I guess, I guess a factor, but yeah, it is is surprising. It really is. Um, And so- um, so I was a vegetarian at this time and had been for, for quite a while. And I just was feeling super strange, for lack of a better phrase, um, mm-hmm. about people who would eat meat in the dog shelter. Yeah. It's like, how do you, how do you justify that to yourself? And yeah. as I started learning more, um, from my coworker about veganism, that feeling just expanded until I really couldn't justify eating animal products anymore. Um, and I feel like I went through that internal change and that growth really, really quickly, but it felt very right. It kind of felt like the person that I was turning into had just been kind of waiting for me to get there. And then once I was there, I was like, all right, here we go. Like things just felt really easy. Um, which was amazing. And at the time, I was applying to an anthrozoology graduate program. Um, And at the time I was applying, I thought uh, I was mostly interested in kind of studying human-animal conflicts, coexistence, um, even conservation, something like that. Um, And then when I kind of got in there and started taking classes, the areas of animal ethics and public policy really captured my interest and attention. And I started to kind of put all of my focus on that. Um, And so I did my capstone project there on sanctuary regulation and third party uh, certification. So kind of all of those bad experiences that I had 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 sort of, it felt like kind of a full circle moment where I got to kind of reflect on how things had even gotten to that point and, you know, how things could improve in the future. So that was kind of um, a cool moment. Um, I graduated in 2020. Not a great time to graduate um, (laughs) from anything in the spring of 2020. Yeah. Um, And then um, kind of weathered the height of the pandemic in in California. And then I started working at Woodstock Farm Sanctuary in New York uh, in late 2021. So I've been there ever since. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I manage the education program at the sanctuary. And yeah, even though my job is to teach other people, I feel like I just have so much more space to learn and to grow. And so. Absolutely. And you're finally at a reputable solid sanctuary after. It's like third time the charm, I guess. (laughs) It feels so good. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's um, yeah. Just I have so much respect for everyone who works there and um just how much everyone is considering um ethical choices and considering the well-being of all of the animal residents over everything else um is really and i think you know there is that 
that that just the weird space of where you know there's the welfareism versus like the total liberation abolitionist approach and even within the movement we're seeing a lot of debates and i find sanctuaries also in the middle of that you know but like but in the position of they're actually interacting with those who have been rescued from these these situations where you know welfareism might not feel like the way to go when you're educating people who are coming to the sanctuary and wanting to hear the stories and i don't know if any of the the guests who come by you know are like talking about free range or locally sourced or whatever the heck that means so in those interactions that you may have and as your in your role as you know someone who's educating people how do you go about that given woodstock's stance on you know animal liberation right so like you said, we definitely have a liberation mindset, and that's really important to the sanctuary and also to me personally. Um, and so people absolutely come in and they ask about free range, cage free, the small farm, the local farm, all of that. Um, and I think it's really important to always be kind to people. That's like my number one, but I do not compromise on the liberation perspective um even i can tell that sometimes people are trying to get me to tell them that it's okay if they eat eggs if they come from a certain uh situation and i won't do it um (laughs) so that's important to me um i will i don't compromise on that and i think um telling people why i won't compromise on it is important and it kind of opens their eyes and kind of shifts shifts their perspective um so you know we talk a lot on our educational tours about how i guess if we'll just go with the egg example we talk about how chickens are bred to lay so many eggs and so it doesn't matter where they're living mm-hmm. the the way that they're bred is like an inherent injustice to them because it causes them so much suffering yeah. and so I think when you can kind of reframe it for people, then they're like, oh, okay. Um, But it's definitely super common. Um, And I also think it's important to point out to people how how much the egg industry and the dairy industry especially have put so much effort and money into getting people to think that they're buying products from happy animals and that, you know, it's not, it's just marketing. And I think people don't realize that. I get really fired up about it because I see from people that they have good intentions. They yeah, yeah. they want to do the right thing. They don't want to hurt animals. And um, yeah, it's um, definitely upsetting that these giant corporations and the system has just duped them to yeah. make money. Um, yeah, it makes me mad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, rightfully so. But I think, you know, as like being in a sanctuary can... And when you see people making that, the attempt to, you know, be like, okay, what is less cruel? And then you have to bring them to like, you know, we're making you switch the way you view this whole thing as it is. I think that's a very hopeful space for sure. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, it's a hopeful thing that they're even asking. Because since they're asking, it shows that they care. And if they care, you know, there's a way forward there. Yeah. Um, if people don't care about um, 
about animal suffering in our food system, it's hard to, you can't force somebody to care about that. It's, but yeah. if they're asking, then they care. I mean, if they're at a sanctuary, someone cares, right? Like they came for a reason. Um, and out of curiosity, uh, do people come in expecting a different kind of experience? Because, you know, there are petting zoos, there are zoos. So they are viewing animals as being there for our entertainment. They feel, you know, entitled to touch them and maybe like try to climb on them. And so how do you navigate that when, or is that anything that you have had to deal with and when, um, and having people reframe how they're viewing these animals as residents and we are entering their home, their safe space. And therefore you can't just, you know, jump on top of a cow you know like i've seen that happen and we've had to i volunteer i used to volunteer at the gentle barn in st louis when i was living um i'm in missouri when i was living in st louis and you know the little, little kid just wants to like at first started really sweet hugging a cow I was like i'm gonna climb on this cow's back and we're just like no 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 don't do that and then the parents are a little confused as to why we're not letting the kid do that and it's you know you get into the space where you're like you have to be kind, you have to be nice, but also like, you know, you're advocating for the residents. So it's, it can be a weird space. So. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds very stressful. Um, so we, um, we definitely get a, a big mix of people. So we certainly have like super fans of the sanctuary or people who have followed us for a long time. They're vegan. They love us and they just want to come and see what's going on. Um, so there's definitely that chunk. But then in the area that we are in the Hudson Valley in New York, there's also uh, quite a large tourist industry. Mm -hmm. right. um, and so you do get people who are just kind of in the area for the weekend. They're just looking for somewhere to bring their kids, yeah. something to do. And so they come on a tour and they really don't know what we're about at all. Yeah. Um, so it's a big mix. Um, there certainly are people who it seems like their priority is to touch as many animals as they can. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, definitely there's gentle correction that mm -hmm. um, needs to happen to make sure that the, the residents of the sanctuary are comfortable and, and feel safe. Um, and I do start every tour by saying explicitly, we are not a petting zoo. Yeah. You are a guest here, exactly like yeah. you said. Um, and so I know that that probably does disappoint some people, but hopefully by the end of the tour, they can understand um, our perspective and, um, and why things are the way that they are um, at the sanctuary. Um, and so there are kind of a few, a few different ways kind of that we deal with interactions with residents it's something that i think about all the time because i never i never want to cross that line and the line can be really fine um for yeah. sure um and so obviously respect for the residents of the sanctuary and their safety and their comfort is my number one priority like if we're flippant about their autonomy um like i just feel like what are we even doing um so uh so that's number one of course um and so i always just tell people you know sometimes we meet people through the fence um sometimes we will go into animal pastures and if they want to come up to us they'll come up to us and if they don't 
that's the beauty of sanctuary. Yeah. They don't have to. Um, and, you know, try and reframe it as a as a positive thing. Um, and we do have a handful of social groups of residents that do enjoy meeting new people. Yeah. Um, usually. And so and they're chill enough that I feel like everyone can be safe. Um, and so we kind of have those go to yeah. groups. Um, so whenever we're in like actually in uh, sharing space on the same side of of a fence, um, like constantly with my head on the swivel to make sure that everybody is doing okay and um, nobody is no humans are really missing any big body language cues or anything like that. Um, it's really important. Um, and one of the groups that we usually will hang out with are our senior pigs who are typically um, really sleepy and um, they're my pals. Um, and so in the case of them, um, I kind of model to people and I say, you know, I'll go up to them first and I'll just say hi and make sure that, you know, they know we're here and see if they are interested in getting a little belly rub or something like that. Um, and so I kind of wait for that vocal and body language confirmation yeah. from them and i explain to people what we're hearing and what we're seeing um and i say you know seems like she's into it so like if anybody wants to come and say hi she's open to it um and so kind of turning it into a learning opportunity um and i think that that helps people to understand a little yeah. bit more Absolutely. i'm sure that i'm sure that people are still some people are probably disappointed at mm. the level of interaction that they do have but i would rather deal with their disappointment like from a customer yeah, service like perspective you're not entitled than... to have to have a cow come up to you so exactly yeah, get over it <laughs> like and I'm, I'm glad you said that because you know in that moment when like with at the incident at the general barn i was like going into like i had to i was like having a whole mental gymnastics going on and like you know there was there were a couple other volunteers who were also, you know, able to um, come through and just be like, you know, this is not how we interact with cows, you know, like this is their home. You don't just climb onto their backs. And mm -hmm. I think like the parents, I don't know what they were like, if they were, you know, also learning from that or not. But then we also have these experiences where, yeah, maybe little kids are chasing after one of the turkeys and then the parents step in and say, no, like, what did they tell us in the beginning? This is their home. You don't treat them like that. And that's always nice to see um, that, that that people are like, okay, we have to be mindful. And we see people, you know, coming, like, leaving the experience being like, I can't, I don't want to eat a turkey again for Thanksgiving or ever again. And, like, they say these things, and it's, it's just so sweet to hear and then my skeptical brain kicks in. I'm like, how do we track this? So so that would be, I think that was a question that I have for you as well. Like, how are you able to track impact after people come in and, you know, they are expressing the, this, you know, life-changing experience that they've had. And are we able to, you know, keep track of like, is that actually put into practice or is that something that you think about as well? It's definitely something that I think about, um, and there are ways that we try and measure. Um, and at the same time, I definitely don't operate in the mindset of, um, like, my goal isn't that every person that I'm giving a tour to goes vegan overnight. Like, I know that that's not happening. Um, but if I'm able to kind of just plant a seed or make them 
think twice or just kind of start that train of thought in their mind. To me, I feel like that is a success. Um, but um, we do give people a survey to fill out um, via email after um, after our tours. It's not a rigorous study. You know, it's not um, anything that is publishable or anything like that. But we can kind of get an impression of what people think um, and how they're feeling. So the some of the things that I am looking for is an interest in leaving animals off their plate. So we ask them kind of, you know, what are your intentions moving forward? And so people can say, I'm already vegan. They can say, I want to reduce animal products, dairy and eggs specifically, meat specifically, things like that. Yeah. So are um, you seeing a certain trend in these surveys? And like, are they... How do you feel like the percentage of folks filling out the survey? Um, this is just something that, you know, we we also want to know as far as impact goes. And it is, I think there's nothing as powerful as meeting those who, you know, are just, they are, I, I think it was another brilliant activist who had said animals are agents of their own liberation. And I think mm. sanctuary is such a beautiful space where that's embodied, right? So I yeah. would be curious to know about what the trend is after people do visit sanctuaries. Definitely. Um, so I think, I mean, like you were saying before, people can say anything in these yeah. surveys. And may, and so we're not doing a follow-up like six months later to see. Yeah, you're not doing like a house check or anything. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, but certainly a lot of people do say that they want to reduce animal products in their diet um which is a step in the right direction for someone who has maybe never even thought about that before um and then we also see a lot of vegetarians who come to the sanctuary and then say that they want to stop eating dairy and eggs um and i feel like vegetarians are a really um they're kind of a group with a lot of potential they're already open like they're already thinking about it and so um and so that is kind of where we see a lot of change which is um pretty cool um and then beyond that um we also ask about attitudes towards animal farming animal agriculture um and we say you know how did you feel before and how did you feel how do you feel after mm -hmm. and we see uh, quite a distinct shift from you know, it's a scale from like very positive, positive, neutral, negative, very negative. Yeah. Um, and so we see a shift from positive, neutral to negative, very negative. And what I appreciate is just there's very little neutrality at the end, which is, um, you know, what we what we hope to see. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, and yeah, it's so important to be able to understand the impact and i think it's tricky in in sanctuary because there is so much happening that is hard to measure in that traditional way um but we do our best um we do our best with our survey for sure yeah so it sounds like you know education and advocacy is like one of your favorite forms of activism is that safe to say yeah yeah definitely yeah so I guess in that realm, who has been or who have been mentors or activists who have inspired the work that you're doing right now? And they don't necessarily have to be within the animal liberation movement. But 
yeah, like who has maybe set something that for you to look up to and, you know, at least mirror some of the work that you do based on. Definitely. Um, I could go on and on probably about this. So I'll just stick to a couple, just a couple people. So yeah, education is clearly a big passion of mine. Um, I'm also really um, personally inspired by um, like direct, um, direct rescue and like on the ground, um, Um. on the ground action. Um, And so We'll say that that is also um, really inspiring to me. So um, Jake Conroy is someone who I don't know, but um, who definitely is a big inspiration. Um, I like the way that he communicates um, a lot. Um, And then in terms of people just in my own life um, who have mentored me, um, one that stands out is um, Chris Stewart, who is one of my professors in my grad program. She's an attorney, um, and she taught my animal ethics um, and public policy classes. Um, And so she was really encouraging to me. I feel like she gave me a really solid foundation um, to educate from. Um, So, yeah, very appreciative of her, um, for sure. And then, um, obviously, my boss and the executive director of Woodstock (laughs) Farm Sanctuary, um, Rachel McChrystal, has taught me so much um i love working for and with her um and um and in general just the caregiving staff at woodstock sanctuary and just people who are caregivers to rescued animals in general um inspire me so much like that hands-on care it is hard hard work it is just it is remarkably hard work. Like even you spend mm-hmm. a day, like a couple hours volunteering at a sanctuary and these people are doing this all day, every day. And it's such hard, hard work. And I can't, yeah, they're just such heroes and heroines. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like physically and emotionally difficult. And so I appreciate everybody who is in in that space and um yeah i feel like sometimes they're not you know they're kind of behind the scenes in a way um but i mean that work is so it's so essential um and so yeah definitely the caregivers of the world um, yeah for sure 100 percent um and i wonder if you know with I, I I hear a lot of people who volunteer at sanctuaries or people in the movement, they just, there there's that vision of like, yeah, I want to have my own sanctuary. And that sounds all well and good. It sounds great. And I'm sure it, like it, it's difficult and there are challenges um, working for a sanctuary or setting up a sanctuary. So for people who want to work in the sanctuary space, what um, are some challenges that they should keep in mind? Of course, it's a rewarding experience, but you know, it's not going to be a field of roses every day. So what um, what are some challenges that you think it's important that people be aware of? So I guess starting a sanctuary is a whole yeah, a whole different situation. Um, so I would say, I mean, really for anybody interested in the space, I feel like volunteering in at a, at a sanctuary is kind of the best way to yeah. get to know the work um, and see if it's a good fit for you. Um, mm-hmm. 
yeah, you kind of have to get in there. Um, so the challenges are many. Um, <laughs> I think the probably the main one is that the work just doesn't stop and it doesn't matter what's going on with you. It doesn't matter what the weather is. It doesn't. Oh, yeah. Like, it never stops. And so that is, um, that's just the reality. It's kind of, it's unrelenting yeah. work. Um, and I think a sense of feeling like there's always more that you could be doing. Um, there will always be calls that you have to say no to, um, mm. you know, requests that you can't take. And um, yeah. and that can be really heartbreaking, certainly. Um, and I think my challenges, I guess, in my like program area, um, kind of from an educational perspective, um, trying to reach people in a way that, um, like we were saying, is uncompromising but still welcoming um, and trying to strike that balance um, can definitely be a big challenge. Um, and even just having a, an education program at a sanctuary is a challenge just logistically um, and everything else. Um, and then... Of course, you know, in Sanctuary, we definitely have to say goodbye to our friends a lot more often than we would like to. Um, so there are definitely, it feels like it comes in waves kind of, you know, there are really tough seasons and really hard goodbyes as, um, as people age. And so it's very bittersweet because, of course, you know, the point is that the animals that we rescue will grow old and have a long, happy life in sanctuary. Um, at the same time, it is really tough and tough to see the impact that intensive breeding has had on their bodies. And, you know, at a certain point, you're just fighting against that, um, which is, you know, difficult. That's not absorb. And you mentioned earlier, uh, that it doesn't matter, like, and I get it, like, doesn't matter what's going on with you, like, the work is always there. And, you know, we think of the experiences that the residents have come from. And we're like, oh, my bad day has nothing. It's like nothing when compared to what they had to endure. And so is there ever a balance that needs to be made by prioritizing one's own mental health and well-being so that they can show up for the residents? in you know a full way because of course you know we want to be there in the best way possible but there's also that balance of like i'm not in a position to do anything and me showing up is not going to be helpful at all to the animals who need it so what is that is that something that you've had to navigate at all um well since i'm not in a, a caregiver role right. in sanctuary i feel like i have a little bit more flexibility in that sure. regard um but i mean it is it's so important to to take care of yourself and kind of stay mentally healthy and um and kind of resilient mm -hmm. and so taking time away is really important um you know even if it's just a day to kind of reset um it's yeah it's definitely necessary and i think um that's when things um, can kind of go sideways for people or they can fall out of the movement is when uh, they feel like just burned out and worn down and like they can't get a break and there's just kind of a flood of 
um, difficulty yeah. um, that I've they can't get. I've seen a out. lot of that, which is it is difficult to see. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's it's yeah that's a that's an issue that needs to be addressed in every space. So again, like coming back to the fact that yeah, like when we envision a sanctuary, it's like all you know, bucolic and picturesque and beautiful, but uh, it's hard work. It is really hard work. So um, yeah. And just, you know, based on um, your experiences and, you know, you've had some shady sanctuary experiences and well, in quotes, and then you are in a wonderful sanctuary right now. So um, how are you seeing that both entities are kind of deciphering what a respectful interaction with the residents are? Like, how are you able to delineate like, okay, this is a, an acceptable, respectful way to interact with them. So I guess that would help people distinguish between this is not really a sanctuary and okay, this is what a true sanctuary is. Um, so I think there's a lot I think that can happen and so it's hard to nail down a specific list but I think that a red flag for people um is if a a sanctuary in quotes or you know a someone who's calling themselves a sanctuary if they have kind of only really young animals or if it seems like they're breeding animals there um i think that that is you know certainly a red flag and if people are encouraged to have sort of free-for-all interactions with animals in general i feel like that's also um a red flag um it's yeah it's hard to make black and white declarations i guess because you know some some sanctuary residents will just run right up to anybody and like that's great um and so it's not um yeah it's not black and white but yeah i think if you're just being kind of tossed into a cow pasture for example with no um instruction no um no safety information no specifics on the personalities of who you are encountering in that pasture, um, I think that um, is definitely something to maybe be suspicious of because it makes me think, you know, the safety of the humans and the and the space of the cows isn't being respected. Um, and so I think that, you know, you should want to be instructed and guided by the person who is leading you around. Um, and I think also, you know, a place where you can just kind of roll up and walk around and never talk to a person yeah. um, who's working there is also certainly a red flag um, because sanctuaries are all about um, they're an ethical space that's guided by this intention and this worldview. And so if nobody is telling you about that, um, it seems like they probably don't care if you know about it, which seems like a red flag. Um so, yeah, that is really helpful. Um, tips on how to spot a good sanctuary versus some entity claiming to be a sanctuary. And also, you know, it sounds like the important thing is to emphasize the body language of the residents and gauge 
like centering how they're willing to explore an interaction over, you know, you just wanting to pet them. So. Right. And like, I think if you're in a true sanctuary, then um, the staff or the volunteers there will be okay with an animal not interacting with you. And if it feels like they're trying to force that interaction or like facilitate something that the resident isn't super into i think yeah that should definitely raise a little raise a little flag for sure 100 percent. and what do you and this could this is just your opinion on this uh what do you think that the animal rights movement as it is right now is lacking and this can be based on being in the sanctuary space or else or otherwise in general like what do you think that we as a, as as a community can do to improve our efforts? Yeah, I guess I don't know that this is coming from the sanctuary perspective necessarily, but just my um, yeah. Which I I feel like I would like to see more of a sense of communalism in the movement. I feel like there are sort of this this handful of prominent figures of the movement um who everybody looks to and obviously they have influenced a lot of people and and done important work but i would also like to see the movement sort of grow beyond that framework because you know no individual or celebrity or influencer is going to save us um and when people have um when everything sort of points to this small group of people we've seen again and again they can't stay at the top um you know people people fail each other in big and small ways all the time and so um i think investing so much into sort of the perfection or the purity of these individual people it's always going to lead to disappointment and when something happens large or small it can feel like the movement is getting pushed backward in some way or that we're we've all taken this reputational hit because this one person uh you know did something that um they shouldn't have done and so i think when we build community locally and we approach from more of a grassroots perspective and we're accountable to each other and uh, and encouraging each other um we don't have to rely on um kind of big names to carry us forward or dictate our momentum um and everyone can kind of dictate that together and move um in the direction that makes sense to everybody um so i mean i think we do have to hold we have to hold each other to a high standard. I think if you're calling people up to expand their worldview, you have to embody that as well. Um, and looking to other people to maintain that standard for us. Um, it just doesn't work. We see it. We just keep seeing it. Um, yes, that I'm so, so happy you said that because, again, I think, like you said, we put people on 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 pedestals and one bad behavior or one allegation or one i don't know just their moment of 
being human is like enough to bring the entire the credibility of the entire movement down and that is a problem that we are seeing um and regardless like of of what you know happened behind the scenes and then it's left to a whole just scenario of infighting and it's it it, it can be a production and that's why I'm I personally like to think about ways to decentralize resources and in order to do certain actions you have do I have to join a particular group or is there what are there ways that I can get resources by just doing that within a grassroots framework like you said in the community and and I think we're starting to or it could just be me in my own bubble like starting to see these conversations or I'm just naturally gravitating towards people who share that thought process as, as well of how to decentralize resources be it legal help be it financial support or I don't know like access to veterinary care for your residents like it, these are things that we do need to think about and not and and by decentralizing i know we all we all do work within an organization so that is so we're not talking necessarily about decentralizing or like like like, like we're, we're getting paid to, to do certain jobs but yeah it's um it is an interesting conversation um to have in this political climate the societal structures it's just is it a utopian vision or is it just us trying to think of ways to restructure the entire system so i feel like that could be a whole different two-hour conversation <laughs> yeah absolutely um but no i mean you're right i think i think it's an important conversation to have and i i agree that i'm hearing i'm hearing people talk about it and i think i think it's great that people are talking about it um yeah yeah. And I also, you know, I also understand the desire to sort of point to one person and say, sure. like, they know everything and like they have the best way. And um, but because it's easy it just, in some way, it is just, easy. Just, you know, like, give me the rule mm -hmm. book, give me the steps and I'll follow that. That it is easy. Yeah. I'm not going to take away from that. But yeah. My personal thing is Walking Phoenix is currently still on my pedestal. I am gonna keep things crossed i'm gonna hope no one reaches out to me and like says that he did something bad but until then he will see yeah yeah he is maybe the only vegan celebrity who has not who has not um, been revealed to be not actually yeah it, like hasn't yeah. disappointed us so mm -hmm. we'll see um yeah. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> Walking Phoenix, if you're listening to this. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think another um, space that, you know, sanctuaries have been a topic of, of, of not debate, but some sort of heated conversation is the effect of altruism space. And I want to talk a bit about that with you as far as like constructive critiques may go flaws, pitfalls, or what it is, what it might be doing right. Um, is it all of, are we all misunderstanding the, uh, what is, what it is behind the, the ethos of it? Because there is a lot of conversation on effective altruism. For some reason, a lot of money is behind that space. 
And then I think of, oh my gosh, sanctuaries and grassroots communities do so much with so little money. So imagine the impact that could be had. So like, let's, let's have this, let's just talk about that a little. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, this is just my perspective. Yes. I'm definitely not an expert on this topic, um, but I'll just say what I have been seeing. Like you said, so much money and support going in this direction um, to effective altruism and um, and very little critique of it. Um, Real quick, if you don't mind just explaining what effective altruism is. Oh, sure. Yeah. So effective altruism, as I understand it, um, is a movement uh, that aims to point people to causes where their donations will be most effective. And so they sort of identified these global issues that they've determined are the areas of most need where money can be most effective. And by um, effective, and it usually is a numbers game, like how many exactly people, right exactly. It's like it's a it's a math equation, basically, right. Um, and that has become uh, really prominent just in the charitable giving space over the past uh, bunch of years. Um, and uh, and animal agriculture, animal welfare is really is a space that was identified by the effective altruism movement as a place where uh, certain organizations that they have determined are good um, right. can do a lot with. So would it be safe to, or I guess a kind of accurate statement to say the reason behind that would be say they're advocating for larger cages because there are so many animals in these factory farms, there are going to be more animals who are quote unquote benefiting from quote unquote, larger cages, as opposed to, hey, funding those in sanctuaries where their lives are actually going to be improved in a way that matters to them, not just so yeah. that you're feeling better about, okay, I ate a bird who lived in a bigger cage. Right. Um, it That's, yeah, I would definitely say that that is accurate. Um, in, in the effective altruism world, sanctuaries are seen as a, a waste of resources because you are putting so much uh so much money into the care of individuals um and in effective altruism you know animals are more from my perspective seen as units of measurement this and sort of yeah. vessels like abstract vessels of suffering um it's all like you said it all has to be very measured and provable and um and uh because it sounds like okay what's going to make the donor feel better oh yay i helped a billion animals by help like okay i just funded their bigger cages and not you know funded their lifetime of care to just live their lives so it's like who are, are we centering the person who's making the donation or are we centering those who are actually going to be impacted in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, it is sort of yeah a way for people to feel um, to feel like they are making the most difference, even if they never actually see the result of that. Um, so yeah, I think it's important to ask 
Um, what has actually materially changed for non-human animals in an effective altruism framework? Mm-hmm. I, it's hard to say because it is you're taking these very real lives of very real individuals and abstracting them. Yeah. Um, you know, in the name of this movement. Um, and so I think for me, like the the erasure of animals as individuals that that EA sort of encourages is really a step backwards. It's mm-hmm. giving up so much hard-won yeah. ground for the movement. Um, so I find that um, kind of disappointing to see. Um and I think from the EA world, there isn't a lot of acknowledgement of work that was already happening before they popped up. Um, and, um, you know, the experts who are already doing work in the animal advocacy space, who are, of course, you know, primarily women who have been trailblazers um, for animal rights, um, they're just really not acknowledged and kind of pushed aside in the conversation. Um so yeah, there's kind of a lack of a lack of acknowledgement of already already existing movements and just kind of a a sense of our way is the right way because the numbers back it up and you'll just have to take our word for it that these numbers are accurate. Yeah. Um, and I think this also touches on the putting people on pedestals and hero worship thing with like Sam Bankman Freed and the whole effective altruism thing and like how in a way that also had a negative effect on the animal advocacy space because it wasn't about oh this person you know was a fraud as opposed to oh this person who was a vegan was Mm -hmm. or whatever he was I don't know but anyway so again don't put people on pedestals um (laughs) Yeah, that's the moral. Yeah. Um, but um yeah, I think yeah, there's a few things. There's a few things. There's so much that we could talk about I'm here. Sure. Yeah, but I but, think it's helpful to to at least address that like what it means and our opinions on it and also why it's kind of contra- it, it it opposes the sanctuary space which Absolutely. I just it it makes it, it it's kind of disheartening when people who care about doing more good are saying don't donate to sanctuaries, which is, is. Like, that makes yeah. no logical sense for people who are very logic and numbers driven. Like I I would rather see you maximize impact on like like you you're we're comparing two completely different things. We're comparing the number of animals who have like maybe they think it's slightly better living conditions but we know that that's not necessarily the case so hearing that stat with the actual value and the improvement in the lives of a handful of residents which is actually you know going like there you can't compare the two so yeah it's true they're kind of incompatible worldviews um and there is this ethic of care that is central to 
sanctuary that, yeah, it's just completely missing and really irrelevant um, to the EA yeah. world. Um, and that's not like I want to live in a world where care and justice is prioritized. I don't yeah. want to live in a world where caring for the mistreated and the marginal marginalized is seen as a, a waste of of resources. Um, that is Just horrible. Give them five minutes of the sun, they'll be fine. We're good. Yeah, right? it's, yeah. it's um, yeah. I think yeah. I think devaluing sanctuary work has implications outside of the sanctuary yeah. world um and even outside the larger world of animal rights in general 100%. um yeah i don't um i don't like to see um groups of indi- individuals kind of reduced to numbers um yeah. on a page um yeah and um and I think there's also the aspect of, you know, anything that we can't measure the way that we would like to measure it is not effective. So it's uh, that that attitude toward um, toward the movement, I don't think is very helpful because especially in sanctuaries, there is so much happening that you can't measure. So, you know, for example, there is a sheep at uh, Woodstock Sanctuary. Her name's Kat. And right now, we're fundraising uh, for her to get a new prosthetic leg. Um, and we'll include all the information on your fundraisers in our show. Yes. So please send them my <laughs> Thank way you. so we can include for that. For sure. Um, but, you know, we know the cost of her leg. It's not cheap. Yeah. Um, but how do you measure the improvement of her life? Like, I could think of a couple ways, but there's no way to, like, fully encompass the change that that will give to her to be able to, you know, keep up with the other sheep and... Um, and just be able to move around more easily and how that will make her feel, you know, you can't really measure those things in a way that that fits into that framework. But that doesn't mean that it's not really important. Um, and especially it doesn't mean that it's not important to cat the sheep. 100 um, percent. I love yeah. yeah. Again, we're centering them and that's yeah. that's important and, and their best interest. And that's what's most important. Um, For sure. So I, yeah, I, I like, I, I just love your excitement when you talk about the sanctuary and the work that you do. So what is your favorite part of the job? You talk about the challenges. So what's your favorite part of being at Woodstock? Um, well, my favorite part of being at the sanctuary is probably um, hanging out with our elder pigs um, in their cozy barn. They're my, yeah, they're my buds. Oh my gosh, um, they always get the warmest space. I, yeah, in the winter times, I'm like, can't find me i'm probably hiding with the pig it's too cold absolutely um yeah my favorite part of my job that's actually like part of my job description um is getting to talk with just genuinely curious people who want to learn um it's really energizing to me um to feel like people are taking uh taking the movement seriously and kind of reconsidering what they've learned um i especially love talking to people this is so specific but people who have gone vegan past the age of 60 um like started their vegan journey past like after they turned 60 um those are probably my favorite people to talk to because they really show you know it's never too late to shed all of the 
family and cultural baggage and all of the things that you've lived with. Um, yeah, yeah very inspiring to me. Yeah. Um, and they also have the ability to inspire, you know, the others in their families, especially like as familial structures tend to, you know, look at elders for guidance and you have absolutely animal, right? Grandparent. Like, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, like some of them were just kind of on their own independent journey. You know, some were influenced by their grandkids, which I think is so cool. Um, yeah, I can't. I think yeah. I can't remember who said this to me, but it's either you know the really young or like the elders who are, you know, really well equipped to make change. Um, yeah. And if you are that person who said that to me, I'm sorry, I forgot who you are. But um, yeah, it, and that is really true. And you can see a lot of that in sanctuaries, but like with kids and older people, which is it's really heartwarming. For sure. So what kind of mentor do you aspire to be? Because we are, you know, a podcast with the Animal Activism Mentorship Program. And one of the things that we really value is um, mentoring new activists and, you know, pairing them with um, mentors who have the experience and the skills in areas that new activists are particularly interested in. So what would that look like to you as a mentor? Like, how would you what kind of a mentor would you like to be? I feel like a good mentor is someone who knows what the individual that they are mentoring needs or needs to hear, um, kind of what motivates them. And so I feel like um, I aspire to be someone who is flexible enough to to work with whatever that person um, might need from me, obviously. I would like to be a supportive mentor, um, give insight where I'm able. Um, and I think just in general, I aspire to be a non-competitive mentor and kind of recognize that there is absolutely room for everybody in this space. Um, and really cool things happen when you empower other people to you know, rise to the, the top of their own abilities. That. Yeah, that, I love that. I just love the just dismantling the whole mentor-mentee relationship. Or <laughs> just let's all uplift each other. I will say that I've learned a lot from people who I've mentored too, and they're just doing such remarkable things. And I'm like, mm -hmm. wow, I'm learning from them now, which is, and I love that. That's always something very special. Um, and. As far as you know, your you and your work at, at Woodstock and all of the the programs that you have, are there any specific programs that are in the works? What plans are going on? Uh, what plans for the future as far as the sanctuary goes? And how can um, our listeners support you and the work at Woodstock? Yeah, so future plans, we have a lot of them. We didn't even really get to touch on kind of the other half of my job, which is our advocacy programs that often yeah. have been online. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, if you if we have time, just kind of quickly go over it. Um, something that I'm really excited about uh, for next year that we have been doing um, for the past two years um, is our uh, FAIR coalition. So it's a coalition of other sanctuaries and um, advocacy groups across the country who kind of committed to educating people about the realities of state and county fairs. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, we found, you know, so many people 
are kind of unaware of the purpose of fairs as um, a sort of propaganda for the animal agriculture industry. Um, and so we've been doing a lot of education in that space. And specifically, um, we are focusing on the Dairy Cow Birthing Center at the New York State Fair. Um, from your face, your face is right. Um, it is horrible. Um, it's basically what it sounds yeah, like. So um, what is that? So dairy farms, um, this happens at county fairs and state fairs across the country. But since we're in New York, we're focusing on New York State Fair. Um, but dairy farms transport very pregnant cows to the fair and they're induced. So they go into labor and give birth in front of an audience at the fair. And it's an opportunity for the industry to sort of interpret um, the events of birth, taking away uh, the baby from their mom, like right after they're born. And, but that um, all happens at the fair? It all happens at the fair. And people find this a positive experience? Unfortunately, yes, they do. Um, I've been twice uh, as part of, you know, to to film and sure, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and learn more for our campaign. Um, and as disturbing as it is to see what the cows are going through, seeing the number of people who are not critically thinking about what is happening in front of them is also um, troubling. But what we have seen is that when we are showing this to kind of a larger group, a larger audience, people are like viscerally disturbed by it. Um, and we have a petition going. We have over 12,000 signatures that um, we're going to um, try and use to make some some change at the state level. Yeah, um, we'll also link that in the show notes too. So folks, these, um, this is, just absurd, horrifying, all of the things, like, just gross. I can't. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really disturbing. And just, like, even the signage and the way that, um, the way that people are talking, it's sort of like a strange backward world where they're showing you everything, but they're interpreting it in a way to make you feel okay with it and to make you feel like it's actually like like a visual campaign to like parallel that was like what if this was a person like a human person Mm -hmm. everyone's Mm -hmm. like oh my god like it uh yeah 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 this is kind of taking a toll on me i yeah i didn't expect to have this kind of a reaction but that's just Absurd. No, I mean, it is, it's upsetting. I'm sorry that I just kind of. No, no. I mean, I'm glad that I now know about this because again, I think where we tend to focus on, and and it's not in in any fault of activists, like we're focusing on, you know, slaughterhouses, animals and experiments. And when we think entertainment, we think, you know, roadside zoos, we think SeaWorld, we think, you know, the Mm -hmm. animals forced to act in films, but yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we think of like pony rides and circuses, but this is the first I'm hearing about like grabbing popcorn and watching a cow give birth. It's just, it's it's wild. Yeah, and yeah, that is kind of one of the refrains of our campaign around that is you know birth is not entertainment. Yeah, it's it it's not um, yeah. for any species. Yeah, it should not be. Um, and and also you know 
beyond that, making the connection for people that this is incredibly disturbing and this is happening without the audience on dairy farms every single day. And so if you have a problem with the birthing center, you should also have a problem with the dairy industry and making that full connection for people, uh, which I think is really important. So yeah, the dairy industry, unfortunately, has a big hold (laughs) um, in New York. And so it's definitely not something that's going to be quick and easy. But um, I also do feel heartened by the fact that a lot of people, um, pretty much everyone who sees it is not, is not okay with it. Oh, that's a relief. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Find the silver lining where you can, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of the job you have to do, you know, it's like, that's how we keep moving forward. You have to take those tiny wins and just use them to our fuel to keep yeah. it going. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Well, yeah, that was um, very informative for sure. So yeah, please share the petition and all of the, any ongoing campaigns that um, Woodstock has and um, so we can share it with the community and people can support the important work that y'all do. Um, and before I let you go, I usually like to wrap up with a question about your vision for a just and equitable vegan world. What does that look like? And I think since you work at a sanctuary, I'd be and particularly curious to hear your thoughts on what it would look like to coexist with these animals who are typically, you know, out of sight or out in a remote area. And some people are, you know, hustling in the city. So what does it look like to coexist with them? I feel like my vision is pretty simple, even though obviously the path there is not simple. But my vision is just a peaceful world where all sentient beings have autonomy and are respected on their own terms not in comparison to anyone else um and it just looks like a like a world of mutual a world of mutual care i guess yeah i think that's just a simple but a simple beautiful vision and um, <laughs> just Oh, we'll get there one day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure. Step by step. I think if we're, we've got to, we've got to, you know, stay um, in in sight of that that vision, so we can get there quicker and um, just yeah, just create a world where we all just learn to respect each other, regardless of our species, and uh, yeah, just let everyone live their lives. Yeah, and exactly. don't put people on pedestals. <laughs> <laughs> and is there anything that you wanted to um, add to that or anything that you want to shout out? Um, anything we may have missed talking about? Um, I feel like we could keep talking for the next three hours probably. That is true. But, that um... is very true. We can schedule um, that for sure. <laughs> um. But well, maybe this is coming, but just um, some Woodstock Sanctuary specific stuff. Um, Yeah. You know, um, obviously, um, donating to the work is really impactful on the individuals who live at the sanctuary. Um, And so there's a lot of different ways that you can do that, um, including um, on social media, um, we're at Woodstock Sanctuary kind of everywhere um 
and signing up for um, our newsletter so you can kind of follow along with rescues and campaign progress and kind of everything that we've been talking about. Um, yeah. Cool. We'll be sure to link all of that uh, in the show notes as well so folks can get involved. And if you're interested in volunteering, we'll be sure to put all of that good uh, stuff down there. So awesome. Thank you again so much for your time. And I deeply appreciate it. Thank you for all the work that you're doing for the animals and for chatting with us today. Please take a quick minute to rate and review the podcast. It helps others find it more easily. And the more people that find it, the more people can be inspired by the guests we have on our show and turn that into actionable change for the animals. And if you're listening on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe. Our channel has educational workshops, talks, and so much inspiring and informative content that you do not want to miss out on. At AAM, it's important to us to offer our content and resources for free so that it is accessible to everybody. If you like the podcast and all that AAM has to offer and are able to support us, please consider a one-time donation or becoming a monthly patron. It helps keep us going. To make a donation, you can use our link tree, which you can find in our show notes. You can also keep up with AAM on social media, visit our bookshop, our merch store, and keep up with all the fun things that we have going on. One more reminder that you can sign up for a free mentor to help and guide you through your activism journey. Just go to our website, animalactivismmentorship.com. So if you needed a sign that you should be an activist for the animals, here you go. Now remember that it will take all of us to come together and collaborate to achieve animal liberation. So stay focused, be courageous, be perseverant, and keep doing your part. And most importantly, take care of yourselves. Until next time.